Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit now into this place, that as you appeared and manifested to your people at the coming of Jesus Christ, that you would now illumine our hearts and minds, that we would see him indeed rightly, and that we too would worship him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold, and little Mary, full of grace with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. It was a labor of pain. It was a cold sky above. But for the girl on the ground in the dark, with every beat of her beautiful heart, it was a labor of love. It is with these jarring words that Andrew Peterson begins his provocative song, Labor of Love. Peterson's lyrics are an attempt to shock listeners out of a trance of over-familiarity. You see, the Christmas story is so familiar to us that it can easily become domesticated and distorted. Just think of the number of times that we've seen depictions of this story. Chances are that we have seen these events reenacted more than we've actually paid close attention to the biblical text. And what this over-familiarity can do is it can cause us to miss out on what actually happened. Let me show you what I mean. We just sang, we three kings, yet nowhere in this passage are these wise men called kings. Sure, they had significant wealth when you consider their gifts, but in all likelihood, they were pagan astrologers from the east, from modern-day Iraq. And not only were they probably not kings, it never mentions that they were only three of them. Many falsely assume that the number of the wise men corresponds to the number of gifts. But since no number of men is actually mentioned in the text, it would have been far more likely that on such a long journey across the desert, there would have been a large caravan of folks traveling together. Perhaps the greatest confusion that we have when it comes to these wise men is the timing of their visit. Most depictions of this story uh, have these men arriving on the night of Jesus' birth, so we tend to think that they were there in the, in the uh, stable or with the shepherds and the angels around uh, the baby Jesus. But friends, look closely at the text. It says that they first went to Jerusalem, and that only after Jesus was born. So they're certainly not there in the stable with the angels and the shepherds, but rather some time has passed, anywhere from a matter of weeks to months perhaps even two years. The point is that that these two events, the birth of Jesus and the arrival of these wise men, they were two separate events. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, and today we commemorate the epiphany when we celebrate the coming of these wise men. These two events are different, but they are certainly related. Christmas centers on the babe and the manger. And Epiphany centers on the world's responses to that babe in the manger. Epiphany, you could say, is the confrontation of Christmas. The birth of Jesus is an event that demands a response. 
Epiphany, it literally means a manifestation, God's manifestation. He has come in the flesh at Christmas, and He confronts the world with Himself. At Epiphany, God has appeared in Jesus Christ, and the world is forced to answer this all-important question, who do you say this child is, and how will you respond to Him? My friends, there's no more important and pressing question in all of life, and not all answers are equal. It is vitally important how you respond because there are actually foolish ways to respond to this question. We'll see a number of these foolish ways in the text, but we'll also see a wise response. You see, our our gospel passage this morning is all about wisdom. It teaches us what, what wisdom and folly look like. You know, we're all desperate for wisdom. We may not call it wisdom today, but I guarantee you every one of us this morning has in our mind's eye some version of the good life. We all have some vision of what it means to live one's life as best we can. It's always there operating underneath the surface, usually without us knowing. Our hearts, they're always asking, what should I do if I want to get the most out of life? The ancients called this search the search for wisdom. And what this passage tells us is that true wisdom, God's wisdom, it's actually surprising. It's counterintuitive. It's wisdom that confounds the world. And in this passage, we see four ways God's wisdom confounds the wisdom of the world, four unexpected things to show us the nature of true wisdom. And if you really want to live a fulfilling life, you're going to have to come to grips with these four things. So let's look at them in turn. The first thing that we see in this passage is an unexpected king. Verse 1 begins, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Let me ask you this morning, where would you go if you were looking for a king or some national ruler? Well, if you were probably in the United States, you would go to the White House. Or if you were in England, you'd go to Buckingham Palace. Or if you were in ancient China, you would go to the Imperial Palace in the Forbidden City. If you're looking for a king, you would naturally go, of course, to a palace in the capital. Because worldly wisdom tells us that's where kings are to be found. These wise men go where anyone would naturally go to look For the king of the Jews, they go to the capital city of Jerusalem. But alas, the king that they're looking for isn't there. And they cause quite a stir by asking this all-important question, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And if they had simply asked, we're looking for the king, can you help us find him? No one would have batted an eye. Instead, because they ask, where is he who is born king of the Jews? That's the reason for all this commotion. You see, no one ever has been born a king. Kings produce heirs, and the heir apparent is first in the line of succession to become a king. Heirs are princes. They're not born kings, but ah, here is someone who is actually born a king. This is a king who's in a class all by himself. 
No wonder Herod is troubled at this. Here is a king who possesses an inherent authority that surpasses all others. The wise men are looking for the one born king of the Jews, but he's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the palace. He's out in a small town, born in a stable, because there was no room for him in the inn. God's wisdom runs counter to the wisdom of the world. The one who had all the glory before the creation of the world, in his wisdom, he comes to the world, not in pomp, not with power, not with prestige. He comes as a poor baby. And the first thing that we learn from this passage about true wisdom is that it's easy to miss if you're looking in all the natural places. And this ought to give us great pause this morning when we consider just where we are right now. We are in the heart of a city, and many of us here this morning possess great power and position. We're educated in the finest of institutions. We have wealth and reputation, and this passage this morning teaches us that the good life is not to be found in these things. True wisdom is not tied to climbing the cultural ladder. Instead, it's found in unlikely places. It's found among the weak and the vulnerable. Tish Harrison Warren in her book, Prayer in the Night, talks about how some today try to make weakness compatible with the wisdom of the world, but she says that true weakness, true humility runs counter to the wisdom of the world. She writes, it is a trend now to meticulously display imperfection online. Messiness can be part of our personal brand. We don't like people who seem too put together, so many are sure to go out of their way to show just how messy they are. But, she says, it's also very curated. Our truest weaknesses will never be a selling point. It's those things that the people closest to us know about us that we'd rather forget, or perhaps we don't even know about ourselves. She says it's those things we'd never share in a job interview and that people, we hope, would never mention in our eulogy. If sharing our imperfections makes us seem cooler and more approachable, then it is not true weakness. Instead, she notes the things that are really wrong with us, they're embarrassing and uncomfortable. True vulnerability is too tender to trust with any except those who love us most, Sharing this part of ourselves with our community makes us more whole, but it will never help our personal brand. You see, true weakness, it's always out of style. It's never something that the wisdom of the world is drawn to, but the wisdom of God is displayed not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem, not in a palace, but in a stable. True wisdom is seen by God emptying himself, making himself of no reputation, making himself an unlikely king. So first, we see an unexpected king, but secondly, we see an unexpected reception. It's not surprising that folks like Herod uh, respond the way they do. He's alarmed when the wise men come. Generally, those with earthly power are indeed disturbed when they are told that there is a God who lays claim on your life. Those who want to be masters of their own life have always been threatened by Jesus' kingship. What is shocking, however, is not so much Herod's response, but the chief priests and the scribes. 
If anyone should have rightly responded to the Messiah, the, the true king of the Jews, it was the chief priests. These men, they knew all the right answers in their head, but their hearts were unmoved. They knew that the Scriptures said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and you'd think at least one of them would go with these wise men to check and see if, in fact, He is there. But they stay in Jerusalem. They respond with indifference. You see, the chief priests had tremendous religious privilege. Unlike the wise men, they possessed the written Word of God. When asked where the Messiah was to be born, they didn't bat an eye. But in the end, it is the Gentile wise men who rightly receive the Jewish Messiah. And Epiphany is all about this reality, that the Jewish Messiah came not only for Israel, but for the whole world. And we celebrate on this day that Jesus is the fulfillment that God, of God's promise to Abraham, that it would be through Abraham's descendants that the nations would be blessed. We heard Isaiah prophesy a moment ago speaking to Abraham's descendants, Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons and daughters shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you, will, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. If only the chief priests and scribes had responded with this thrill and exultation. But as we heard last week in John's gospel, God came to His own and his own received him not. This is indeed an unlikely reception. And J.C. Ryle comments on these verses, and he tells us their significance to the church today. He says, what a mournful picture this is of human nature. How often the same kind of thing may be seen among ourselves. How often the very people who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them the most. There is only too much truth in the old proverb, the nearer the church, the further from God. Here then is the second lesson this morning about true wisdom. True wisdom is not a matter of amassing facts in your head. It is also a matter of your heart and your hands and feet. True wisdom involves the whole person. The wise men, they knew far less than the scribes and the chief priests, but they are wise because they act on what they know. And that is a mark that should be true of all of Jesus' disciples because it's a mark of what true wisdom is. And this begs the question for us this morning, how have you responded to what you know of Jesus Christ? He lays claim on your life. And so you can hate him like Herod and reject him, or you can fall down and worship him like the magi, the wise men. But my friends, the one thing you must not do this morning is be merely indifferent to him like the chief priests. You have to do everything about him. You have to ignore everything about him if you are actually going to be indifferent to him. Because everyone who has ever seen him rightly has never remained indifferent to him. He claimed to be God, the king of kings, and at least Herod took him seriously. 
the things that Jesus said, the things that he did, who he was and what he came to do, these things demand an all or nothing sort of response. Well, what was it that caused these wise men to respond the way that they did? No doubt it was linked to who he was, but it was also about what he came to do. So we have an unlikely king with an unlikely reception, and now third, we see an unlikely mission. Much has been made over the three gifts that the Magi offer. We don't know if these wise men gave these three things because of their symbolism or if it's just because they were costly and therefore fit expressions of their adoration. But whether they knew it or not, these three gifts, they foreshadow exactly who this child is and what his mission was all about. It was believed that gold was the king of precious metals in the Middle East at this time, and so gold is, in fact, fit for a king. This first gift tells us who he is. He's a king. But the second gift tells us what he came to do. You see, incense was offered in the context of worship. It was a gift fit for priests in the temple. And what exactly was the role of priest in that day? Well, it was to bring people to God. Jesus was, yes, a king, but he came also as our great high priest in order to reconcile us to God. That was his mission. And if you're going to receive him rightly, you must reckon with this. He didn't come as a politician to settle the affairs of men or to alleviate poverty. Sure, he multiplied loaves and fishes, but he also said, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give. He didn't come neither as a doctor to eradicate disease or ailments. He, uh, yes, indeed, healed the sick, but he would also depart from those who needed him most in their hour of need. He didn't come either as a, a military leader who would overthrow the Romans as much as the Jews had hoped that he would. He told Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't even come to establish peace on earth. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And he said this because he knew that fidelity to him must supersede all other allegiances and those who were willing to follow him would actually be rejected by those who cared about them most. No, he didn't come primarily for any of these reasons. He came to deal with our most dire, our most pressing need. He came to remedy man's estrangement and enmity against Almighty God. He didn't come to bring peace on earth. He came to bring peace with God. He came to deal with our sin, to cover it, to put an end to it. And the surprising thing is that not only has the offended party actually taken the initiative to accomplish this, but it's also shocking the depths he was willing to go in order to fulfill his mission. The first gift shows us who he was. The second gift shows us what he came to do. And this third gift shows us what it would cost him to fulfill this mission. Gold was fit for kings and incense for priests, but myrrh was fitting for the dead. It was used in the burial process. 
Mothers, this morning, I want you to put yourself in Mary's shoes for a moment. I want you to imagine your own child's baby shower. They're gifts that are offered. Now, there's the usual ones, the diapers, the the bath supplies, the lotion, the the necklace, maybe even a silver spoon. But then after all these gifts are open, there's, there's one final gift remaining, you take this box and you handle it with care. You, you peel back the, the tissue paper and the, the sparkle of this gift begins to shine. And you pull it out of the box and you take a closer look at it. And what is in your hands shocks the room. And silence is found. It's a very expensive, very costly porcelain urn. And you're confused and bewildered, perhaps even offended Because urns are what you put ashes of the dead in. What sort of gift is this? That's exactly what's going on here in this scene in our text. Here is this babe. He's the king of glory. He's come to make peace between God and man. And the real shock is that he's going to do it at the cost of his own life. Here is a king who was born in order to die. Later, this king would say that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He has come to serve the world precisely at the point of their greatest need. He's come to put an end to all of our sin and to reconcile us to God. This is a king who lays down his life for his sheep. It's wisdom that confounds the world. If you want to respond as these wise men did, You must come to see what he came to do and the depth of his love in this unexpected mission. But when you see these things, it also leads to one final surprise. There's an unexpected king and an unexpected reception, an unexpected mission, and finally an unexpected joy. As the wise men finally reach the king, they worship him, and in so doing, they find an all-surpassing joy. The wisdom of the world tells us that true joy is is found not by serving anyone else, but submitting to yourself, your own desires. That's the only person that you should serve. The surprising thing about this unexpected joy of these wise men is that it doesn't come from within. It comes from the outside. It comes from outside of ourselves at the very moment we give up ourselves and ascribe all worth to Jesus. You see, whether you realize it or not, every single one of us this morning is worshiping something. Every one of us has a king on the throne of our lives. And the ultimate question is, can that king bear the weight of your soul? And can he deliver on what he promises? Some worship their career, others their relationships, perhaps their spouse or their children that they have, or maybe they don't have but want. Others still worship experiences, comfort, sensuality. All of these approaches, though they may satisfy for a time, in the end they run dry. Jesus Christ is the only one who is able to hold the weight of your worship. When the wise men bow down and surrender their lives to him, they find a manifold, unending joy. They find that this king is the object of their heart's desire. Here at last is someone worth bowing down for. Here at last is someone who does not demand submission by force or by threat. Instead, he woos us by his love 
And he calls us to entrust our lives to him. But he's already shown us that he has given his life for us. And friends, do you have this joy? Do you know something of the counterintuitive nature of this delight that comes by giving up yourself to this king and his service? If you would become one of his servants, how might you do that? Well, it's simultaneously the simplest and the hardest thing in the world. You must forsake all other allegiances and give him your life. You must surrender your heart to him and say, I'm done resisting. I'm done searching elsewhere. All that I am, all that I have, it's yours. Take me and use me as you see fit. Jesus would later speak of this unexpected joy when he promised that whoever would lose his life, or whoever finds his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. Friends, men and women of all ages and classes and nationalities have been finding this unexpected joy for thousands of years. One saint who's gone before us, who's tasted this surprising joy and was willing to go to the extreme to share it with anyone who would listen, he said these profound words about true wisdom. He said, he is no fool to lose that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool to lose that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. This is indeed wisdom that confounds the world, but it is true wisdom. It is God's wisdom. May you and I heed it this day. Amen.